Um, so today I want to continue on with um, part 10 in our series through the through the New Testament. I'm curious as to how many parts this is going to end up. You know, in six or seven years when we start to get into Revelation, be part 875. You know, uh, so. Um, but this uh, this is just a, a, a for me this is just a great journey and uh, one of the things you, you run into throughout the scriptures if you just kind of read if you just read through them um, you find multiple concepts and very powerful truths that God speaks to us the Bible is just filled with not so much promises just truths that that his 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 presence his power his authority um, the, his his um, uh, his work in the life of believers all those things are there. And they should never be taken for granted. They should always be valued. They should always be treasured. They should, we should strive to apply them to our lives. Now, that being said, uh, there is a trap that you can fall into when, you're, uh, when you have something in mind. And that is when we use a passage that is in the Bible... To prove a concept that is in the Bible, but it's the wrong passage. Because it, it has the right wording in English, because obviously, you know, Jesus spoke English. The original Bible, the writers all, all wrote in, in, you know, modern 21st century English. You know, we, we think that because it's translated and it's using certain words that it, it's going to prove the concept that we want. And oftentimes that just doesn't happen. Actually, more often than, than you realize. You know those, those times where you, you go out and you get a new car and you think, wow, no one has one of these. And you're driving around and everyone has one. You see them everywhere. That's the trap. That because you're focused on something, you see it everywhere, even if it's not there. And this is one of those passages that we're going to look at today. And uh, among us charismatics, and I am a card-carrying charismatic and I make no apologies for that. But among charismatics, we are horrible at this. We can see something in the Bible that has, it's never, not only is it not there, it's never been there, but we've decided that that's what God means because the Holy Spirit has told us. Um, but we forget that sometimes the Holy Spirit actually wrote it down so that we wouldn't get it wrong. <laughs> but, but here we go, you know. Um, and today we're going to be looking at one of those passages through the baptism of Christ that is often used to justify the idea that the power of God is given in limitless proportion to all believers as soon as they're saved. And the problem what we're going to, that we're going to find is that not only is that idea not in this passage, there are other passages of Scripture that refute that idea. But we like the way this is, this is worded, so we tend to lean on this. How many of you ever heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, pretty common. The passage we're going to look at is where most of that comes from. And I'm going to challenge you to maybe hear something that maybe you haven't heard before. Okay? So the first thing we're going to see is that when we pick this up, we're in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. We pick it up with John the Baptist saying this, to a group of Pharisees. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Yee-haw. 
So right after John says this, Jesus steps on like it's like it's a cue in a play. He's like, and, and here I am, the one mightier than him. It's good timing. And John has already been hyping him up as the mighty one. Now, the thing you got to understand about the nation of Israel is they knew the Messiah was coming at some point in time, but they were firmly rooted in the idea that the Messiah was going to be a mighty like political military leader. That was the main concept that Jesus was going to come destroy all the enemies of the Jews and the Jews were going to rule the world. That was the mindset. And so John is talking about this one who is so mighty. He's so mighty. I can't even carry his sandals. It's, it's going to be amazing. And then here comes Jesus. That's me. You would expect that at that point, Jesus would come on the scene and say, I'm the one he's talking about. I will start baptizing. I will take over where John left off. But it's not what he did. He went in a direction that very few people would have, would have, have, have believed. But it was the direction that God had planned from the very beginning. So the mighty one steps onto the scene. And in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13, we read this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And then John tried to prevent him saying, no, 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 no. I need to be baptized. You, you're the mighty one. But you're coming to me. You're coming to me to be baptized. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so uh, to permit it to be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. And when he had baptized, had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and, uh, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Now what had just happened was obviously not expected by anybody. Because even John was like, I don't know what's going on. Now, we're going to get to the dove and the voice in a few minutes, but I want to look at a couple other things first. Because Jesus is coming on the scene, and this moment, this moment of his baptism, the moment when the heavens were open and the voice of God spoke, was the actual moment where his ministry for the redemption of all mankind began. It's when everything starts. So this is a significant moment, and God is trying to make a point. And unfortunately, it is a point that the majority of Israel missed and that is often still missed, in my opinion, it's still missed today. Now, the first thing is that we know that the act of baptism, the act of going under the water and coming up, is not what saves you. Baptism by itself does not save anybody. Baptism is not what we do to be saved. Baptism is what we do because we are saved. We do it in obedience, because it is a public display of our commitment and fidelity to walking the path of Christ. We were baptized into Jesus. But why was John baptizing? He made it very plain that his baptism was a baptism of repentance, right? So now this is kind of odd. Did Jesus need to repent? Did Jesus need to get saved? Did Jesus need to be born again? No, none of that. So what is going on here? 
What, what is happening in this, in this moment? Almost every commentator that I read um, basically agrees on one thing. They have no concrete idea what just happened. And the reason they don't is because the Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us directly. This is a very unique and slightly obscure passage of Scripture, especially when Jesus says that this is, is uh, uh, fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What? What's, what's more righteous than Jesus? What, what, is Jesus suddenly more righteous than he was a second ago? No. Something else is happening here. Jesus knew that what was about to happen. Jesus knew that the heavens would open, that the spirit would descend. Jesus knew this was going to happen. And there was a reason why this had to be done this way. And I think the majority of it comes down to the fact that even when Israel was talking about the greatness of God and the supremacy of the Messiah and this wonderful military political leader, and John is talking about the one mightier than he, whose sandals I cannot untie, uh, I'm not even worthy to carry, on comes, uh, on, uh, Jesus comes onto the scene and his first act of business is one of humility and obedience. Completely different from everything that everyone was expecting. I think he's trying to make a point. So in order to get to the bottom of this, we have to do the best we can to logically reason this out with the rest through the rest of Scripture. Now, for those of you who are in the logic class, what kind of logic are we going to be using? Inductive, deductive, or abductive? Give you a quick hint. It's the last one. Abductive. We're going to peel away some layers until we're going to make our best guess as to what, what Jesus is talking about. And I think it's actually quite clear when you start looking at the rest of Scripture. Now, there are a lot of things that we could cover in this passage, but there are only two things that I really want to look at here. And the first one is that Jesus was not establishing himself as the man in charge. He, he wasn't putting his foot down. He's like, you will obey me. That is not what he came to do. And the second one is the mark of the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. There's something significant about that. But the first thing I want to look at is a servant king. Now, Plainly, Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Not going to be Lord someday, not maybe will, not not if you believe in him, then he's your Lord. No, whether you believe in Jesus or not, he is your Lord. He sits at the right hand of God. He controls everything. He rules everything. Everything is under his feet. There is nothing that is not in his control. He is Lord. So he did not come to the earth to establish his lordship. He's not here to prove a point. He's here to accomplish something. He's here to fulfill the role of the Messiah, our Savior. Now, Scripture describes the promised Messiah in multiple ways, but the most prolific chapter in the Bible that, that, that describes the, uh, the Messiah is Isaiah 53 commonly referred to as a suffering servant. Now I want to read you that entire chapter, and I want you to be thinking about what the Jews at the time thought the Messiah was going to be, and I want you to look at what God tells us the Messiah will be and see if there's a difference between the two. Listen to this. Who has believed our report, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form of, of uh, comeliness. That just means he's not much to look at. And when, he, uh, uh, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows 
and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he, uh, yet he opened not his mouth. He was laid as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from the prison uh, uh, and, and from judgment. Excuse me. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked, but not, uh, uh, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul uh, unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Does that sound like someone who is going to raise an army and overthrow Rome? No. No. So what was the problem here? Where was, where was the disconnect? This is not describing the man the Jews were waiting for. However, it does describe the man that Jesus was. It does describe the person that we know through scripture. Check these passages out. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, let, uh, let this, this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Excuse me, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How about this one? For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How about this last one? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going to God, rose from the supper, uh, from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Does that, does that sound like the conquering king that, that, that Israel expected? No. When you consider passages like these, Jesus' decision to allow John to baptize him makes perfect sense. There was a view that the people of God had, and it was the wrong view because the, peop- the teachers that the people listened to had it wrong. Think about that. For generations, the teachers that the people listened to were wrong. JFK used to say this, if you tell a lie long enough, 
eventually people will believe it's true. Jesus was here to do something different, something never seen before. He is Lord, but he came to serve. And that should be a reminder to anyone who wants to ever run anything. If you want to lead with the blessing of God, you lead from the bottom. You are not king, no matter what. We are servants. If, if you're running a ministry, if, you, if it pastoring, whatever, you are a servant in charge of something. You are not the leader over something. There are no CEOs in the kingdom of God. We are all servants. It says you want to be the you want to be the greatest, be the least. But this was not what the Hebrew nation wanted. Now, isn't it amazing how often this happens? We criticize the Hebrew nation because these people were so ridiculous. They had the word of God in front of them. All they had to do was read it. But they didn't want to read it. They wanted to believe whatever they wanted. What a bunch of weirdos. Imagine believing something that is completely contrary to the word of God. Aren't we glad that that doesn't happen today? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard someone say, it has been revealed to me when Jesus is returning? It's this year. All the signs have lined up. I have drawn drawn on my whiteboard, and I will show you in several YouTube videos. I will sell you a course for $19.99 if you just, just to, to tell you and to show you why Jesus is showing up at this time on this day. It has been revealed to me. I know exactly what's happening. But the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Aren't we glad modern day Christians are not biblically ignorant to the point where we buy into stuff like that? Praise God that we have more, <laughs> we have more Bible references today. We have more knowledge today. We have more understanding of scripture today than any other time in history. I have more biblical research information on this stupid gadget than any other theologian through history available at the swipe of my finger. Yet I still, <laughs> we still get into debates over things that are nowhere in the Bible. There's still churches that preach that you have to speak in tongues to be saved, even though Paul says, do everyone speak in tongues? No. The same guy that wrote the, wrote the part in Corinthians where we're supposed to, you know, here's the spiritual gifts and we try to use that. And, at the, the, you know, a chapter later, he tells us, it, it, no, we still do it. Why? Because we value our opinion more than the word of God. That's why. We value the word of men, especially men that we think are spiritual. Over the word of God. We can't do that. We can't do that. Now, does that mean we bury our head in the sand and never pay attention? I mean, does that mean you can't hope that Jesus is coming back this year? Go ahead. I've always believed like this. Live your life like Jesus is coming back today. 
but plan your life like Jesus isn't coming back in your lifetime. Then you're safe. But here's something I think we all need to remember. There is nothing that will ever come out of the mouth of a believer more important than what is written in the pages of Scripture. Nothing. It doesn't matter how smart the person is. It doesn't matter how wise the person is. It doesn't matter the size of their ministry. It doesn't matter how many people listen to them. It makes no difference. There is nothing that will ever come out of their mouth that is more valuable than what is written on the pages of Scripture. Nothing. And they're not allowed to pull the God, call, God told me card because all I have to do is say the exact opposite and say, but God told me. It's completely irrelevant. You want to follow the word of God? You've got to read it. So let's move on. And so at some point, like I said, the ministry of Jesus had to begin and the starting gun of our redemption had to go off at some point in time. And this was the moment that that gun went off. It was pretty awesome. From his birth to this point, remember, from the birth of Jesus to now, about 30 years have passed. He kept a pretty low profile, did a couple of miracles here and there, you know, surprised a few people who thought they were smarty pants and he told them, you know, how much of the law they had wrong. But from this point forward, his public ministry was right out in the open. It was miracles and messages from this, from this point to the point of his crucifixion. And it's pretty clear that this moment was intended to mark the beginning of the Messiah's earthly ministry. But just in case we weren't sure, God removes all of our doubt. When the heavens open and the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, and everyone there is watching this happen. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be relatively convinced at this point. I wouldn't need a whole lot of extra convincing to believe in Jesus at this point. But you know that the voice of God and the Holy Spirit of God were not a last minute addition to the moment? Do you know that if people would have researched the scriptures and they were at this moment, what happened is what they should have expected. Check this out. Going back to Isaiah. Isaiah's got some... You want to really understand the character of Jesus, you got to read Isaiah. This is Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 4. It says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. I want to stop. Look at that part right there. He will bring forth justice to the who? The dogs? Like the lowest of the low, the people that no one wanted to hang out with, the worst of the worst. So here's the interesting thing, and I think this is why this is written this way. The Jews already had the law. They had the justice of God. And this is 700 years before the arrival of Christ. God is letting us know through the prophet that Jesus was not just coming for his people. He was coming to bring justice to the world. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed will not break and a smoking flax will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. That's pretty amazing. 
And he says, I will place my spirit upon him. Now, it's kind of interesting. You can look at that and say, well, you know, uh, maybe he was just going to come with his spirit. Well, this is Jesus. I'm pretty sure he had the spirit of God in him. I'm just saying, you know, it's Jesus. But I think this is God, again, pointing us back to something, something amazing. Not pointing us back to the power of the Spirit, but pointing us back to the authority of the Scriptures. Because over and over again in the life of Jesus, what does he say? Well, it was written by... Abel's going to be talking about the temptation of Christ in the desert here in the next couple of weeks. And, and what do we read all the time? It is written, it is written, it is written. It's almost like he's trying to get us to remember that God left us a book of instructions if we would just read it. So Jesus comes out of the water. The Spirit of God descends on him, just as the prophet said, and the Messiah's ministry to redeem the lost began. Check it. I just think this is amazing. The Messiah comes on the scene. Everyone thinks he's going to be this great military political leader. And it begins with a public display of submission by Christ. And then followed up by a public display of the authority of Scripture by God. I think that's just awesome. But we tend to view this in a different way. I've heard it preached over and over again. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we're going to be covering this a lot through the rest of our journey. I've been told over and over again, this is proof that whenever a believer confesses in Christ, the Holy Spirit infills him and they have access to all of the gifts of the Spirit right there. That is one of the reasons why you're supposed to speak in tongues when you get saved because all the gifts of the Spirit are available to you. See, right there. When Jesus believed, Holy Spirit fell on him. Now, hold on for a second. First off, if that was true, when we believe, if this is the roadmap, shouldn't the heavens open? I mean, if we're basing it off of this, this is what's supposed to happen when we believe. Shouldn't the heavens open and shouldn't God say, uh, yeah, he'll do. But that's not what happens, is it? Almost like this is a one-off event meant to get our attention, not the norm. How many of you have been told throughout your lives, if you, those of you who have been around a little bit longer, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire means receiving the Holy Spirit through spiritual gifts? How many of you heard that? How many of you have been told that through your lives? And you're like, I'm not raising my hand. I know a bunch of you lived up here your whole life. I know you've heard it. Because a lot of times people say, well, yes, I'm a Christian. And the next question out of someone's mouth is, are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? If you get down south, it's spurt. I lived in Georgia for a long time, and trust me, it's spurt. Okay? <laughs> Depending on where you are, it might be spurt. Uh, I went to one church, one church in, uh, uh, where was it? It was um, Fort Stewart, just outside of Fort Stewart in Georgia. And that guy, that guy was very, very fiery. But he could put a ah at the end of things you didn't never would have believed. At the, like, he, like every syllable in a word was just like, there was an ah at the end of it. It used to crack me up. But it was just how he spoke. 
Anyway. <laughs> so let me, uh, so here's, here's the issue. This is, this is why this section is not talking about spiritual gifts. It, it's just, it's just not. You have to go back and look at the conversation. Who was John talking to and what was John talking about when he made that statement? He was talking to unrighteous, self-absorbed Pharisees and Sadducees about how they needed to turn their life around and start doing things that were worthy of the repentance available to them by God. And then he says, I baptize with water, but there's one coming after me that will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Why in the world would he, and then he continues on talking about the relationship between us and Christ. Why in the world would he break that pattern in the middle and throw in something so obscure, no one would have ever known what the baptism of the Holy Spirit or spiritual gifts was. It would have been a completely worthless statement. No one would have understood that. And the gospel writers are not going to be like, you know what I'm going to put in here? No one will ever figure this out. <laughs> no, they're trying to document something. And I think based on what was happening at the moment and what was happening in the life of Christ and, and, and the ministry of Jesus, this was not a display of power and authority. This was a, a display of humility and obedience. Why would he turn the tables? And at the same time, people talk about the fire of God, the fire of God. We need the fire of God. And they, they, they view that as the Holy Spirit's power. Let me ask you something. Why would God use the same description of his authority as he would his judgment? When we're being told we need to escape the fire of God, which is the fires of hell, which is the judgment for the unbeliever, why would God describe his authority and his power the same way? Fire is only used three times in scripture. It's always the same thing. It's the presence of God. It's the power of God, not of us, of God. And it's the cleansing of the believer. Those are the only three ways that fire is used in scripture. If we just follow the conversation... I think what we're going to see is that this, this is not us becoming some overly powerful being wielding the, the, the authority of God at our will. I was having an online conversation with someone a, a few days ago, and he was talking, he was basically, he was beating me up um, because I had agreed with someone online that if God was not going to heal them, then eventually they would be healed in eternity. God does not have to heal us here. And the guy was like, that's not true. Jesus never said no to anyone for healing. Like, you didn't read the Bible. He says, all you have to do is ask. It's up to us to make that healing happen. I thought, that's interesting. I said, so just, and and this, is, this is actually what I said to him. I said, so the next time you go into a hospital and clean it out, let me know and I will publicly repent of my views. And I'm not kidding. This is what the person said. I'll do that when doctors start having surgeries in churches. I have to admit, I, like, I had to stop and read that a couple times. I'm like, did, did, did you really just, like, really? Like, in your mind, that was a logical retort to that? Like, really, like that was like, ha-ha, gotcha. 
No. Because that power doesn't belong to us, never has. I think if we look at this, what we can see is this is nothing more than a comparison between the physical water baptism of John and the coming spiritual internal baptism of Christ and helping us understand that both of these point us to the same goal of God. It's the same goal of God, whether it's a spiritual baptism or a water baptism. The goal is the same. It is the saving of the soul of the believer. John could not do it on a spiritual basis because Christ had not gone to the cross. The spiritual baptism for the redemption of the believer was not available yet. So John would baptize with water for repentance, which is exactly what Jesus does in the heart of a believer. And the fire is the cleansing on the inside that only God can accomplish. Look at John 3. It says, Jesus answered, this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be, be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's like, ha ha, got you there, Jesus. Then Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of what? Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. How do you become born of the spirit? Do you do it? No. It is done for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is not God granting you spiritual authority. He is talking about the rebirth of the Spirit and the cleansing work of redemption. And what I would suggest to you is that there is a difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit in relationship to your salvation and the idea of the power of the Holy Spirit coming on you in his service. I do not believe that they are the same thing. I get challenged on this a lot. Where do you think I go for my answers? Back to the scriptures. I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures, and then we're going to jump out of this, okay? Look at this in Acts 19. Verses 1 through 6, it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, now listen to this carefully, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Are they believers? Yes. They had not received the Holy Spirit. Interesting. And he said to them, "Um, Into what? Then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Aha. Now that's interesting. Then Paul sent John indeed uh, baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus, which they did, which is why they knew they were believers. When When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Let me ask you something. Did the Holy Spirit come on them when they were baptized? Read the passage carefully. No. It didn't. 
When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, period. And when Paul laid hands on them, it happened after. But we tend to read this like it's one statement. It's not. It's two. Two things happened. They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then the apostles laid hands on them. Then they received the Spirit. Acts 8, 14 through 17. says, And now when the apostles were at Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they must receive, they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why were they going? So these people may receive the Holy Spirit. As of yet, he had not fallen on uh, upon none of them, and that they had, listen to this, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So now, wait a second. Were they believers? Yes, they were regenerate believers. They had the living spirit of God inside of them. They were saved. They were forgiven. They were redeemed by the blood of Christ, but the Holy Spirit had not come upon them. This is why I'm telling you that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is about salvation. It is not about power. It is not about being in his service. John was being really clear. I'm going to submerge you in water to clean you. The best I can do is clean you on the outside. Jesus is going to clean you on the inside, and he's going to use fire to refine you. That's what that passage is talking about. It doesn't mean that the power of God is not real. It's just the wrong place to prove it. Look at Ephesians. Last last verse, I promise. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. After you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of the Spirit and fire. God will renew you, God will restore you, and then God will begin to cleanse you. You want the Holy Spirit and fire in your life? This is what you're asking. You're asking God to show you the path you need to walk and to purify you while you're walking it. Yeah, we say amen. We love the, we love the heaven part. We don't like the purity part. Because God purifies in two ways. How many of you know the two ways that God talks about purifying you in, uh, throughout Scripture? First one is obvious. It's fire. And what that means is the fire gets so hot that it burns away anything that is not good. There's one other tool that God uses to remove things out of your life that he doesn't want. You want to take guess what it is? It's a sword. Not a scalpel. That's right. The sword of God will cut away all the things in your life that he doesn't want there. Fire and a sword. Yay. I think I would just want to try the obedience side. I mean, I mean, just, you know, I love learning from mistakes, but I prefer other people's. Mm-hmm. One of the things that everyone used to say about me when I was in high school, uh, I, you, might not, you might find this hard to believe, but I was a little high-strung and sort of rebellious in school. 
I was also the one that everyone wanted to have at a party because I had no limits. But I learned very quickly, and, and people used to ask me about this. They'd say, you never actually drink to the point where you're just hammered. This is before I met Christ, understand. And I was like, you're right, I don't. And they're like, why? I said, because I see what happens to you. And I ain't going there. Praise God, we did not grow up in the days of cell phones. Right? No. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> the rebirth of the Spirit is being born again, and the fire of God is a cleansing presence of the Holy Spirit. It is not the same as the Holy Spirit coming upon you in His service, which is something you should want. One has to happen, the other can happen. This is what I'm going to end with. I'm going to pray for us. First thing you need to do is believe in him who has the power to cleanse the body and soul through the, through the Holy Spirit. Believe on him. That is Christ the Lord. Second, serve that same one and trust that the same spirit that gave you a new life will empower you with whatever you need when you need it. Those are two things we need to understand as Christians. Trust in the one who does the cleaning and then serve the one and believe that he will give you what you need when you need it. Just learn to trust him.